talking to you first, Joanne. Um, in particular, I think I, I'm interested here. Joanne has joined us in Mason Hayes and Curran as a senior associate, having worked for um, nine years in London, actually, as a construction lawyer. So the viability challenges are something that we're hearing a lot about in terms of the Irish construction sector. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're experiencing? Sure, yeah. Um, well, 2022 was an important year for the Irish construction sector. It was the first full year of construction activity since the pandemic. However, over the last 12 or so months, there have been increased concerns around the viability of many construction projects in Ireland. That's due to a variety of reasons, including rising material and labour costs, labour shortages, um, high interest rates, high cost of capital. All of those factors have had, and they continue to have, a direct impact on the cost based by developers and the tender prices received from contractors. In fact, um, the increase in interest rates has played a significant role. Um, not only does it increase the cost of building for developers, building houses, it also eats into investors' returns and therefore makes some um, types of asset less affordable, for example, PRS schemes. And so we've seen some private institutional investors begin to move away from property investment. Um, it's been suggested that the year ahead will be a challenging one for home build building, particularly for apartments, where it's been reported that construction costs um, rose by 9.6% last year. It's also been reported that um, the cost of building a two-bed apartment now is in the region of over 240,000 euros. Um, and that doesn't take into account any indirect costs or allow for any element of developer profit. Um, it, it, commentators are suggesting that um, the government's housing for all target of 29,000 completions this year may not be met for the reasons I've just outlined. For 2023. And Joanne, do you think that is this an Irish problem or are similar challenges being faced, faced in other jurisdictions? No, it's not unique to Ireland. Um, recently in the UK, the, the UK's third largest contractor um, by revenue has said that soaring interest rates and inflation means that some projects aren't viable for them. In Spain, um, it's been suggested that um, in terms of residential units being built this year, um, it'll hit 500,000 and that's down 25% on the previous year. Again, the sector there is blaming viability challenges for that. So high um, cost of land, high construction costs. Um, okay. And in terms of these challenges that are facing the sector that you're working with, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, how is that impacting your practice? Yeah, so we're, we're seeing contractors take a more considered approach to pricing terms. Um, and, and that is having a material effect on the time it takes to, to get contracts agreed and over the line. In fact, in the first uh, three quarters of last year, many contractors were simply refusing to enter into fixed price contracts. Um, now the landscape's changed a bit, so contractors seem to be a bit more relaxed with um, supply chain risk. And so we're seeing contracts being entered into that just wouldn't have been entered into six months ago. What I can tell you is that as a lawyer, you can draft lots of great language around cost certainty um, in the tender version of a building contract. But most sophisticated contractors who know what those terms mean will look for key time and cost risks um, to be addressed. What we're seeing play out is more engagement on contract terms, particularly around fixed price language. Um, uh, so 
advisors are spending more time getting into the weeds on terms so that employers, contractors, funders, etc., um, have more certainty on who takes key cost risks. Speaking with um, a QS that I'm work with, working with on a project here in Dublin recently, their sense of things is that where tenders are coming in over budget, um, contractors are working very closely with design teams to value engineer. Of course, there's nothing new there, but it just reflects that money isn't going as far as it used to. And everyone um, has to come up with practical workarounds to get a project underway. And can you outline to us then some of the government initiatives um, that have been aimed at addressing this viability challenge for the sector? Yeah, well, viability is the key issue for the government's Housing for All policy. The government has come up with various initiatives, grants and subsidies. Um, there's a lot of them. Um, I'll focus on just three of those today. Um, the Land Development Agency launch project um, TOSSE in November 2021 that scheme allows the Land Development Agency to buy land or homes um, with full planning provision um, from uh, private sector owners where developments have stalled for a variety of reasons, usually because of um, financing constraints, and use it for affordable cost rental or sale to eligible households. My understanding is that the LDA is on site um, on, in 12 developments around the country and it's um, projected that that project will provide up to 5,000 affordable homes by the end of 2026. The next um, scheme launched by the government last year was the Creek Onaha City Scheme. That scheme uh, essentially aims to bridge the viability gap for apartment building um, in the five largest cities in Ireland. Um, to be eligible, apartments must meet certain crit criteria. For example, apartments must be for sale to owner-occupier households only, must be able to demonstrate a viability gap, and must have a full grant of planning permission. Um, the third scheme I'll focus on is uh, the Creekonaha Towns Fund scheme. Um, so that fund is essentially designed to tackle vacancy and make better use of our existing housing stock. There are two schemes under that fund, the first of which is the Ready to Build scheme. Under that scheme, local authorities will make service sites available uh, at a reduced cost to individual purchasers or self-builders. Um, uh, uh, the level of discount will depend on the level of servicing costs incurred by the local authority, but it won't exceed €30,000. Uh, on completion, the purchaser must reside in the dwelling as their principal private residence. This, the second scheme within that fund is the vacant property refurbishment grant. Um, a grant there of €30,000 is available for the refurbishment of vacant properties for occupation as a um, principal private residence. A top-up of €20,000 is available if the property is derelict. Um, to be included in that scheme, Properties must be vacant for two years or more and built before 1993. Again, on completion of the works, um, the relevant owner must reside in the dwelling as their principal private residence. Clawback provisions apply if they don't. That grant is available to a range of individuals and households, including first-time buyers. Okay. And, you know, that's it's great to see these initiatives, which are hopefully are going some way to address some of the viability issues. Are there other policy interventions or levers available to the government in your view? Yeah, um, if, I mean, if I knew 
if I could answer that Imagine question, that. <laughs> I'd be a very rich lady probably. But um, I think um, while a lot of increased uh, construction costs are due to global supply chain issues and larger economic um, factors um, that the government can't mitigate, what the government can do is focus on things within its control. Um, so, for, for example, the soft costs, um, which make up roughly half the cost of building a new home. Um, uh, for example, the planning process, public procurement process, etc. IBEC uh, recently published um, a very good report in that housing report. They set out both short-term and medium-term measures to tackle current viability issues, some of which include extending the Creek-Conaha Town Scheme, reviewing the Creek-Conaha city scheme so that it focuses on mixed tenure developments as well. There have been calls from the construction sector to reduce or abolish the VAT rate and all materials, and they've actually said that that will make building more viable. Okay. So in terms of, because actually we talk about the Creek only bridging a viability gap. What is that viability gap? Um, essentially, a viability gap is where the cost of um, building an apartment or a house, for example, um, is higher than the market sale price. So the gap is basically the difference between the delivery cost and the sale price. Mm. Apartments are expensive to build, particularly in urban areas. And so that's um, that's where the viability gap arises. Okay. And in terms of um, the amount of funding the government is making available and the number of units that they're hoping to bring onto the system through these systems, have they have they put numbers on that? Yeah, so in terms of the both Creek on um schemes, the government has set aside 500 million euros for that. My understanding is 450 million has been set aside for the city scheme um, and 50 million has been set aside for the, the Towns Fund scheme. Thanks, Joanne. Jay, I want to bring you in now. Um, we have, there's a long-awaited bill has we just got published just before Christmas, the Planning and Development Bill 2022. Um, it's aimed at improving um, the consenting process, the planning process, bringing about speedier decisions and streamlined judicial review. Um, I think one of the first things it did was it's changed the name of Onboard Planola, which we've all managed to master as saying. And we've seen a lot of clients who are not from Ireland master saying Onboard Planola. And now they will have to say On Commission Planola. So the Commission is our new entity that we'll be talking about from now on. So Jay... What are the proposals in that bill that will bring about swifter determinations by the Commission? By the Commission. So at the moment, in terms of mandatory timelines, um, the board has mandatory timelines for strategic housing development applications and also for planning appeals from large-scale uh, residential developments. Um, the proposals under the bill are that there will be mandatory timelines for all of the planning applications that are submitted to the Commission, um, which will include, for example, strategic infrastructure uh, developments, uh, as well as all planning appeals. So the intention there is that that will speed up those decision-making processes. Um, that's going to be done on a phased uh, basis. So the first phase of mandatory timelines will uh, supposedly be strategic infrastructure development applications. Um, in terms of if the commission misses a deadline, there will be a fine at, at the moment. The fine's not set. That's going to be set in secondary uh, legislation. The timelines as well themselves, then also not set, but I understand that's going to be kind of dealt with very quickly. Um, 
in terms of what those timelines should be, I mean, they have to be reasonable. So for example, as I was mentioning, the strategic uh, housing development applications have the mandatory timelines, but if they're too fast, then there might be a question of, you know, the commission rushing into decisions and then potentially errors happening from that. And then those errors could be subject to judicial review applications. So it needs to be ensured that the commission have sufficient resources to deal with those mandatory timelines. Okay. And are there proposals also being brought in to deal with moving judicial reviews along, you know, in terms of reducing the number of judicial reviews in an ideal world? Yes. So first of all, um, who can bring a judicial review application is going to be stricter criteria on the type of applicant in certain environmental proceedings. So the criteria that's set at the moment, and I will just say it's obviously set at the moment because the bill hasn't been finalized as, as yet, you know, it has to go through um, the debates and, you know, we might see a different bit at the end, but in terms of what's set out in the bill, the, um, an applicant who can have standing has to be a company that's been established for 12 months at least before issuing the proceedings. Uh, they must have at least 10 or more members. So that might reduce um, judicial review proceedings from organizations that are just set up uh, very recently before bringing the proceedings, which um, I think it was coming out in the government policy paper about uh, neighborhood organizations, for example. It doesn't necessarily mean that individuals themselves might still not be able to bring those actions, but that's one area that might reduce ju uh, judicial review applications. Okay. Um, another aspect as well is that um, when the judicial judicial review proceedings are issued, um, the respondent, so the decision-making authority, like the commission, uh, as well as the notice party, like the developer, will need to be put on notice. So normally that didn't happen until a later stage in the judicial review process um, at the leave state, at leave stage. So once they're notified, they also have to indicate um, to the court um, as well in terms of whether they'll be able to oppose those applications that again might reduce the number of ju judicial review applications going through the leave stage. Um, another change as well, which was something that um, was in the IBEC report that Joanne mentioned, um, is that once the proceedings are issued, if the decision-making authority notices um, that they, there's been an error, then they have the opportunity to put a pause on the proceedings, for a stay on the proceedings, go and correct the error, and then to let the other parties know in case that actually, you know, has... Um, so with a minor, yeah, if it's a minor error, they can adjust that, okay. That's exactly, yeah, if it's a technical error and then the other parties are satisfied with that, then the proceedings can, you know, be dismissed, yeah. And what about planning appeals? Because that's still uh, an area where people feel there's a lot of delay kind of comes into the system. Is there anything to address, um, any proposals to deal with the, the moving, reducing the number of planning appeals? Yes, so... The, one of the overarching aims of the bill is that it's going to be more plan-led and strategic. So, and there's going to be more uh, public engagement earlier on in the development plan process. So the idea being that there'll be more predictability in terms of if you put forward a planning application uh, that complies with the development plan policies, um, then you should hopefully have more certainty and, you know, that you, on the decision that you'll have for that, if it's complying with the policies, then you'll be hoping to, you know, be granted planning permission. And also the public should hopefully also be being aware of what type of applications are going to go where as, where as well. So they might be less, you know, likely to appeal and um, those decisions. 
Um, in terms of whether that will happen, depends on, for example, the level of uh, detail that you might get in the development plan. So for kind of issues that are normally dealt with at the planning application stage, which might include things like density or the type of environmental effects, they could still be contentious issues that people look to um, appeal, you know, to a, to the commission. Okay. Um, it's also supposed to the bill supposed to be more kind of user friendly, so that all practitioners are kind of aware of you know the provisions that they need to be looking at. So, for example, the planning authority, when it's you know having to take into account various matters, should should um, that that should be kind of clearer for them. So that they take into account the particular matters and then they should be less likely to appeal based on what decision they've they've made as well. Okay. Is there anything in the bill um aimed at or dealing with large scale res- residential development that you've seen? So yeah, that th- there there is. So the large scale residential development uh, applications um replace the strategic housing development rate regime subject to transitional provisions under the current Planning and Development Act. Those provisions have been brought forward into the current bill um, and are pretty much the same as what what they are in the current legislation. So for that type of application, the the planning application needs to go um, directly to the planning authority instead of the commission or or the board that's, you know, working with the SHD um, applications. Uh, You still have the pre-application consultation part of the process, but this time it will be with the local planning authority. And at the end of that, they will let you know whether you have a reasonable basis for making the application. One, quite a, another significant change with this, uh, with with the large-scale residential developments, is that uh, there'll be the opportunity for further information requests that you didn't have with the SHD regime. So what that might address is if, for example, you have gaps in your planning application, those can then be dealt with in the, at the further information stage, rather than having to make a determination where you know you're aware that there are gaps, and then that could then be subject to judicial review application. Okay, so in parallel with this bill, there's um, a new planning and environmental division of the High Court being introduced. Um, I think that sounds very interesting in terms of it's something you know, a new departure, and hopefully there's a lot of uh, scope there for that to improve um, the process. What do we know about that division of the High Court? So what we know, so at the moment, if you're um, issuing judicial review proceedings, they'll go into the general judicial review list. So it's not just planning and environmental matters, but all types of judicial review and public uh, authority decisions that will be in that list. So the judges there will not necessarily be specialist planning and environmental judges. And planning environmental law itself can be quite technical. And also the type of evidence that's presented as well, particularly environmental evidence, can also be very technical as well. So. The, the judges in this new division will be specialists playing an environment or uh, judges have training in that area. So the idea being there will be more certainty on the outcome on terms of, you know, when judicial review uh, proceedings are issued, you'd be more likely to kind of weigh up actually what are the merits of success, what, you know, whether that's likely to be successful or not. It should, it should also mean a kind of speedier process in terms of the case management because they'll be more aware of the stages in the planning process. So, for example, if there's um, a pause or a stay on the proceedings, they'll be able to weigh that up better in terms of whether there should be a pause, for example, on progressing the planning permission whilst the proceedings are um, underway. Okay. So, what is next for the bill, Jay? What, where, do, you know, where does it sit at the moment, and how, how is it going to progress in the next while? 
So at the moment, for, for example, I was saying um, you know, there are things like the timelines, which are yet to be set. Um, I understand there's going to be discussions in the government today in terms of what those timelines will be. So those technical details need to be um, ironed out and put into the bill. Then it will go through the normal debates. Um, and, you know, it's, gonna, it's over 700 pages at the moment. A lot of it could be considered to be quite contentious. Um, it's reshaping the planning uh, regime for the first time in 20 years. So although the, um, the government's aim is for it to be finalised and enacted in the next quarter of this year, probably going to take uh, a lot longer than that, considering the level of change that's been put forward under it. So although it's urgent in terms of you know, trying to reshape the planning regime, it's also, you know, doesn't want to be rushed through. So It's a big job, yeah. It's exactly, yeah. yeah. Very good. Okay, I'm going to take some questions now. So um, just looking through what's come in on the Q&A. Um, first one actually is for you, Joanne. Um, Joanne, in terms of the vacant property refurbishment grant, is that open to developers? No, um, it's, it's not open to developers. It's only available to um, individuals or households where the property is their um, principal private residence. The Quicona, um city scheme is more developer focused. Okay. Okay. Taking another one here for you, Jay. Um, can you tell us what are the key changes to the commission itself in terms of the, its actual organisation? So there's going to be uh, a splitting up between, uh, in terms of the governance functions and the planning functions uh, at the commission. So uh, the, the idea being that there'll be more kind of oversight of the planning functions and more impartiality potentially with the decision-making uh, process. Uh, there'll also be, I understand, a legal services unit who will be established as part of it to review planning um, decisions, you know, before they're made to, you know, give them a legal sense check as well. Okay. John, a question for you here in terms of how are time and cost um, issues being dealt with in contracts? Um, well, it, it really depends on the context and the party's sensitivity to cost risk. Um, so, for example, we've, we're focusing more on fixed price contracts. Um, so you can have a fixed price contract with that's subject to certain carve-outs for certain risks occurring or costs increasing in certain respects. In terms of the contracts we're seeing now, there's um, you may find that um, parties are pre-ordering materials like steel um, and the contract needs to facil facilitate that. So you might have, um, that might necessitate an upfront payment from the employer. So um, you'll have generally a vesting certificate off-site materials bond um, included within the building contract. We're also seeing more early warning mechanisms included in building contracts now. So that requires a contractor to um, provide a, a procurement risk schedule and um, contact their supply chain at regular intervals um, so that any sort of delays or additional costs can be flagged as early as possible. Okay, very good. Okay, well, thank you both. Um, I think we're going to leave you there for the moment. <laughs>